Brought to you by PrayLatin.com, makers of prayer cards featuring complete English phonetic renderings of Latin pronunciations. Archbishop Viganò has been busy lately. Most recently, I provided to you a letter of him addressing a recent letter Benedict XVI wrote to a priest at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, where Benedict sang the praises of Vatican II and the necessity of that council to essentially correct errors the church held before the council. When you really read his letter, that's what he was doing, and including what it looks like undermining the sort of doctrinal authority of St. Augustine. As you can imagine, Archbishop Viganò kind of had a field day with that letter, and it took some people aback because the it is uncomfortable for people to address Benedict's role in the sort of current crisis in the church. That letter also took some people back because, well, Vigano's letter was very dense. It was, it just was. But his ultimate point in that letter was that the council itself is is not the problem because the problems in the church did exist before the the council, but it is like everything else. It is where those problems became manifest and foisted upon the entire church, where the problem element became the authority in the church. Now, I have for you a letter that was written, actually, an exchange of letters, really. It's, it will begin with a relatively short letter from a nun, a, an anonymous cloistered nun. And the letter is written in Italian, but I ran it through a good translating algorithm so that we can, you know, have it in clear English. And she asks him the kinds of questions you would ask him, well, many of you would ask, including, is Francis actually the Pope? But the questions really revolve around what we see being done to the bride of Christ, to the mystical body of Christ, by the man the world sees as Pope. And what are the laity to do? And of course, would Christ recognize the church when he came back, or when he comes back? Provocative questions. Questions that, again, many of you ask in the comments all the time. And Vigano does provide an answer. And it's interesting to say the least. He never comes quite out and says, no, Francis is not the Pope. Never says it in anything clear language like that. But his answer is unequivocally that these prelates, the modernist prelates, including Francis, are not Catholic. And so you have to ask yourself the question that, you know, instead of a contest, like to ask people who are associated with recognize and resist, like us, I guess, which is, can a non-Catholic hold an office in the church? Provocative question. Something we should consider ourselves, I suppose, but at least in light of Vigano's letter. But first, let's get to the question, the letter from the nun, who asks Vigano these very pertinent questions. And she is acting almost like the in your stead, at least for many of you, when asking Vigano these questions. The exchange begins with a letter from a cloistered nun. Most Reverend Excellency, I am writing to you on the occasion of the approaching Feast of Christ the King, and allow me to share with you some fundamental questions. Does it still make sense to celebrate and invoke the grace that this liturgical feast so aspired to when it was instituted? If the King of Kings and Lord of Rulers, see the letter to Timothy chapter 6 verse 15 and Revelation chapter 19 verse 16, were to return today in his glory, he still recognize his bride, the church. 
with these questions, I will seem to you irreverent and untrusting in that promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail. See Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. In that promise that resonates as a hope to be clung to by those few survivors of the wind of deadly apostasy that has invaded the church. Well, the provocative tone of such questions sums up the feeling of confusion of the few remaining faithful. Faithful in search of some reference of magisterium, valid sacrament, and consistency of life of pastors. I turn to you as the voice in the wilderness, which so many times has enlightened so many lost and challenged people. I wanted to tell you about this little episode that happened to me. A few days ago, a lady who brought some providence to the monastery said to me, But you know, I don't follow these things much. However, it seems to me that the direction the church has taken lately is not so good. From the wheel and the tone of voice, I sensed the embarrassment of the one who was expressing herself to someone she felt represented the very church that had just been questioned. I could make no great speeches. My response was a simple appeal to the need to intensify personal prayer leaving the lady in her ignorance and allowing myself to identify with that, quote, church, which I really do not feel I represent. The feeling was one of great helplessness helplessness, and the impossibility of being able to give comprehensive and truthful answers. A few minutes earlier, I had read the exhortation of Pontiff Pius XI, when a hundred years ago in the encyclical Ubi Arcano Dei, he exhorted Catholics to the duty of hastening the return to the social kingship of Christ a kind of moral duty of personal and collective commitment. Is this commitment still valid? And how to put it into practice if the, quote, church is no longer church? The Ubi Arcano Dei was the insipid for the institution of the Feast of the Kingship of Christ, which then took place in 1925 precisely to avoid the havoc we experience in these years. In that encyclical, the kingship of Christ was understood as the remedy for secularism and all those errors that, a hundred years later, have been generously embraced by many prelates, bishops, cardinals, and even by the one who presents himself as the representative of Christ, and who under that banner has promoted the ruinous acceleration of the flock deceptively entrusted to him. Francis is considered pope, albeit apostate, but is he pope? Has he ever been? When Pilate asked Jesus what truth was, though he had it before him, the gaze of Christ, the judge of the world, penetrated the mediocrity of the weak man before him. Pilate trembled for a moment, but the cloudiness of his own personal pride prevailed. Christ the King returns today in the same guise and looks into the eyes of bishops and cardinals who do not recognize that crown of thorns that he wore in their place, taking on the price of their betrayal, their pride, their unworthy blindness. I remember reading in the diary of St. Faustina Kowalska, the saint of mercy, that one day Jesus appeared to her all scourged, bloodied, and crowned with thorns. He looked into her eyes and said, the bride must be like her bridegroom. The saint understood well that call of spousality, of sharing, meant. This is probably the form of recognition of Christ's kingship, that our historical moment is personally demanding of every true Catholic. Yes, it seems to me that this is the vocation of the true church in our time, of that small remnant, that crossing the the stare of Christ the King, abused and disfigured by blasphemy and perversion, still has the courage of a response of love, fidelity, and consistency of conscience that it cannot deny. For otherwise, it would deny Christ the King, as did Pilate, Herod, and all the leaders of the people. 
I will not hide from you that these lines I wanted to solicit one of your interventions, full of Christian hope for that small remnant that is lost because it is without a pastor, without that representative of Christ who should guard and defend the church entrusted to him. I have asked her questions that many are asking with so much pain in their hearts, and I am sure that the Holy Spirit will be able to give her those answers that will rekindle the expectations for the return of the triumph of Christ's kingdom over society in every heart over the entire face of the earth. The chiefest vocabitur et thronus eius eit firmissimus in perpetuum. Signed, an anonymous cloistered nun. Like I said, provocative questions. The nun's letter is articulate. You can hear the sort of sorrow in her voice when she's writing. Her absolute deep love for the church. I mean, a cloistered nun, someone seeking a, light, a cloistered religious life, is almost certainly not someone who is going to have anything but absolute love for the church. You don't seek a life of prayer and service to Christ in the way that a cloistered religious is going to live unless you have absolute love and devotion for the church. It's why whenever stories come of religious and priests being persecuted by, quote-unquote, the church, I cover them, especially if there's obscure stories not getting coverage anywhere else. These are people who gave everything to pray for the church, to pray for our salvation. So whenever one of them asks a question to Archbishop Vigano like this, it's worth looking at. And it's happened a few times in the past. And her answer, I mean, her question is valid. Is Francis actually the Pope? Are the prelates the hierarchy Catholic? And how do we, what do we make of the promise that the adversary's efforts will not prevail against the church? Provocative questions. And they do get some provocative answers from Vigano now. Vigano's response letter. Reverend and dearest sister, I read with lively interest and with edification the letter that you sent me. Allow me to respond to you in what I can. Your first question is as direct as it is alarming. The king of kings and lord of rulers were to return today in his glory, would he still recognize his bride, the church? Of course he would recognize her, but not in the sect that eclipses the Sea of Peter, but in the many good souls, especially in the priests, the men and women religious, and so many simple faithful, who, though they may not wear horns of light on their foreheads like Moses, are nevertheless recognizable as living members of Christ's church. He would not find it at St. Peter's, where an unclean idol has been worshipped, not at St. Martha's, where the contrived poverty and truncated humility of the tenant is a monument to his outsized ego, not at the synod on synodality where the pretense of democracy serves to complete the dismantling of the divine edifice of the Catholic Church and to impose the scandalous conduct of life, not in the dioceses and parishes where conciliar ideology has replaced the Catholic faith and erased tradition. The Lord as head of the church recognizes the pulsating and living members of his mystical body and those dead and rotting ones torn from Christ by heresy, lust, pride, now subjugated to Satan. So yes, the king of kings would recognize the Pusius Grex, even should he look for it around the altar in the in an attic, in a cellar in the middle of the woods. She mentions that the promise of the adversaries of the church not prevailing may sound like hope to cling to, and that the provocative tone of such questions sums up the feeling of confusion of the few remaining faithful, faithful in search of some reference of magisterium, valid sacrament, and consistency of life of pastors. 
our Lord's promise to St. Peter is provocative in a sense because it starts from two assumptions. The first is that the gates of hell will not prevail, which tells us nothing about the level of persecution the church will have to endure. The second, logically consequential from the first, is that the church will be persecuted, but not conquered. For both we are asked for an act of faith in the word of the Savior and in his omnipotence, along with an act of humble realism in our weakness, and in the fact that we would be deserving of the worst chastisements, both among modernists and traditionalists. She asked me how to put into practice Pius XI's call for the restoration of the social kingship of Christ, if the church is no longer church. Certainly, the visible church to which the world recognizes the name of the Catholic Church, and of which it considers Bergoglio as Pope, is no longer church, at least limited to cardinals, bishops, and priests who wholeheartedly profess another doctrine and declare themselves to belong to the, quote, conciliar church, an antithesis to the pre-conciliar church. But are you and I, and the many priests and religious faithful, part of that church or the Church of Christ? To what extent can we superimpose the Bergoglian Church and the Catholic Church, assuming they are superimposable in any way? The problem is that the conciliar revolution tore the bond of identity between the Church of Christ and the Catholic hierarchy. Before Vatican II, it was unthinkable that a pope could shamelessly contradict his predecessors in doctrinal or moral matters, because the hierarchy was very clear about its own role and moral responsibility in administering the power of the Holy Keys and the authority of the Vicar of Christ and the pastors. The Council, beginning precisely with the anomalous definition it gave itself, and the break with the past represented by the elimination of the canons and anathemas, showed how it is possible for those who have no moral sense to hold a sacred role in the Church, while being unworthy in three aspects that she punctually enumerated. Magisterium, valid sacraments, and consistency of life of pastors. These people, deviant in doctrine and morals and liturgy, do not feel bound by the fact that they are vicars of Christ and can therefore govern the church, only if their authority is exercised consistently with the ends that legitimizes. For they abuse their own power, usurp an authority whose divine origin they deny, humiliate the sacred institution that somehow stands as guarantor of the authority of those pastors. This rupture, this violent tearing, was consummated on the spiritual level at the moment when the authority of the prelates was secularized on a par with what happened in the civil sphere. When authority ceases to be sacred, sanctioned from on high, exercised in place of the one who sums up in himself the spiritual authority of supreme pontiff and the temporal authority of king and lord, there it corrupts into tyranny, sells itself with corruption, self destroy destroys itself in anarchy. She writes, Christ the King returns today in the same likeness and looks into the eyes of bishops and cardinals who do not recognize that crown of thorns that he has worn in their place, taking on the price of their betrayal, their pride, their unworthy blindness. In those very features, dear sister, we must recognize the Holy Church. And just as we were scandalized to see her head humiliated and mocked, scourged and bleeding, with a garment of fools, the reed and crown of thorns, so we are scandalized now to see prostrated in a similar way the whole militant church, wounded, covered with spit, insulted, mocked. But if the head was willing to face the sacrifice by humbling himself to the point of death and to the death of the cross, for what reason should we presume to deserve a better end, being his members, if we really want to reign with him? On what throne is the Lamb seated, if not on the royal throne of the cross? Regnavid e aligna Deus. 
This was the triumph of Christ. This will be the triumph of the church, his mystical body. Rightly, she gloried. The bride must be like her bridegroom. She continues, Yes, it seems to me that this is the vocation of the true church in our time, of that small remnant which, crossing the, the stare of Christ the King, abused and disfigured by blasphemy and perversion, still is the courage of a response of love, fidelity, consistency of conscience that it cannot deny. For otherwise it would deny Christ the King as the pilot, Herod, and all the leaders of the people. Your letter, dear sister, is an opportunity for all of us to reflect on the mystery of the Pasio Ecclesia, so close to what is happening in these terrible times. And I conclude by recalling the propagation of the promise that the church will prevail against the gates. As the Savior knew the shadow of the tomb, so we must know it will happen to the church. And perhaps it is already happening. But he will not let his Holy One know corruption. See Psalm 15. And he will raise her up as a resource himself from death. In this sense, the words, the bride must be similar to her bridegroom, acquire their full meaning, showing us how only by following the divine bridegroom on the Golgothan scaffold could we merit to follow him in glory at the Father's right hand. I urge you to profit spiritually from these thoughts as I impart to you and to your dear sisters my widest and most paternal blessing. Signed, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, on the 4th of November, 2022. As you can see, Vigano never comes out and quite says that Francis is not the Pope. But he does say that these are not Catholics, that they have some other creed, that they have some uh, that they admit that they belong to something they call the quote unquote conciliar church. In, in life, often our adversaries tell us things we should listen to them. The events of the past week, I think, we should tell us that as well in the secular realm. When they tell us things, we should listen to them. We should believe them when they try to tell us what they're planning to do, or what they truly believe in this case. And that's what Vigano did here. He truly, he tells us that, the, he reminds us the modernists tell us that they, about, they often talk about the, quote, conciliar church, that they rarely, if ever, cite preconciliar documents unless it really suits their purpose to emphasize that the changed nature of the church and how their change is somehow in continuity when it's really just cherry picking. So does Vigano say Francis is not the Pope? Not explicitly. Because there's that underlying question. Can someone who is not Catholic hold office in the Catholic Church? And I mean real office. I don't mean this, pont this demonic things Francis are doing with the Pontifical Academy, pointing atheists who support the Moloch ritual, who are advocates for the Moloch ritual, to seats and posts in the Pontifical Academy. I'm talking about concrete offices. By concrete offices, I mean like divine offices. Can they be bishops? Can they be priests? Can they be the Pope? It's a question I don't have the answer to myself. I know what the set of a contest answer is. It's not one I it's not a position I hold to. But it's still something we should be thinking about. Because there are options besides, you know, Francis being Pope and having to submit to him, or Benedict being Pope. And having to submit, and then having to submit to him in sort of an odd resistance position to Francis. And there's another option. There are other options besides the set of a contest position. But I'm curious what you thought of this letter, these this exchange of letters. It's unfortunate, at least at the time of this recording, that no English outlet has published this. So I will try to put the full text in English of each of these 
on my sources blog at returntotradition.org so you can read them for yourself. Um, if by then some like LifeSite or some other outlet in America or in the English speaking world publishes these in English, I will defer to them and just post links. But um, you can read this for yourself at Marco Tosati's website, which is a new website that I'll uh, also have linked in my show notes today at returntotradition.org. So let me know in the comments what you thought of this letter, please. Uh, like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. Just sharing this on social media, that helps enormously as well. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria. <laughs>